Hello, and welcome to New World Coming, produced by the People's Forum. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fourth episode of New World Coming, a series produced by the People's Forum. In today's episode, James Early speaks with author and activist Jesus Chucho Garcia, who is a founder of Fundación Afroamerica y la Diaspora Africana and former Venezuelan ambassador to Angola. In this episode of New World Coming, James and Chucho reflect on Venezuela's journey towards deepening the principles put forth by the success of the Bolivarian Revolution. They discuss how essential the participation of Afro-Venezuelans are to furthering and realization of the Bolivarian process, his personal history, the relationship to the study of African history, and the ongoing struggle for reparations that has been undertaken by social organizations and supported by different leaders in Latin America. Finally, they talk about the crucial importance of distinguishing between contradictions amongst comrades and contradictions with the enemy. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Instagram and Twitter to see more political educational content. To study the topics of his interview and the previous episodes, check out our political education website at politicaleducation.peoplesforum.org. Please enjoy this interview and stay tuned for more episodes. Brother Jesus Chucho Garcia from Barlovento in Venezuela, let's start our interview. First of all, I want you to explain how you identify yourself ideologically, politically, and organizationally in relation to the Afro-Venezuelan communities, but also in relation to the Bolivarian Revolution with a leftist government. Well, thank you very much to the People's Forum for this invitation, and I'm very, very happy to talk with you also because of our many years of struggle together. I think there are three elements to my response. In the first place, I come from a totally Afro-Venezuelan family, a grandmother who died at 103 years old. Self-sustainable, right? She had her own cocoa farm, and she always talked through her stories, Las Tradiciones Orales. She would say, look at your skin. We come from there. And I'd tell her, from where? From there. She said, from Africa. You're not seeing that this skin is different? I recognized that in a documentary about my grandmother that I made in 1987, where I put her in dialogue with the people in the Congo, from the Democratic Republic of Congo, on my first trip to Africa. That was creating that awareness in me. A second element is to have lived in a context where, in those times, guerrilla warfare was an essential focus. My community and its surroundings, even my community, San Jose Barlovento, what is today the beautiful state of Miranda, was even bombed, bombed to chase out the guerrillas. It was a mission sent by Fidel to support the guerrilla fight in Venezuela. That was the Machurucuto landing, and many of the fighters died. So you felt the pressure as a child listening to the sound of bombs, seeing the checkpoints, del cabala, where you would pass and the permanent repression against our Afro communities. That is the second element that contributed to consolidating my thinking. Later came the permanent research that I would end up doing and that I continue to do on the African presence in Venezuela, where I had to investigate not only within the entire Afro-Venezuelan community, but then go and investigate the archives, the National Archives of France, the General Archive of the Indies, and then travel to Africa. So you felt that pressure as a child, listening to the sound of the bombs, seeing the checkpoints, the Alcabala, where you would pass, and the permanent repression against our Afro communities. That is a second element that contributed to consolidating my thinking. 
Later came the permanent research that I would end up doing and that I continue to do on the African presence in Venezuela, where I had to investigate not only within the entire Afro-Venezuelan community, but then go and investigate the archives, the National Archives of France, the General Archive of the Indies, and then travel to Africa to do research on oral traditions. All three elements have been essential in my formation of my life and of my self-consciousness. I didn't gain this conception in college or in school. On the contrary, these elements were never in the curriculum. They were never in the books. It was an act of permanent cimarronaje against an instituted knowledge, against a knowledge that made me become aware, a clear conscience of history, the conscience for oneself, as Karl Marx said at that time. There is the identification evidently with the progressive movements and parties of the time, and also currently with the Afrovision. This is what we have also discussed in the processes of change that have taken place in Latin America, that still, and this is the first conclusion, the left as a whole does not understand that 135 million Afro-descendants in the Americas are part of the processes of change, not of the past, but also of the present and the future. I am remembering my first meeting with President Hugo Chavez when he posed a question to activist Danny Glover, who was president of the Trans-Africa Forum here in Washington, D.C. of the United States. And President Chavez asked Danny, why are you not going to develop chapters of the Trans-Africa Forum in Venezuela? And I immediately responded in my Spanglish to the president, but you have it already here in the Afro-Venezuelan network. And Chavez responded, where is Chucho? Looking around the room in the presidential palace, there were 20 representatives of the Trans-Africa Forum with some Venezuelans, but it was obvious that the president knew you well. What was your personal connection and also your connection as an activist to President Chavez and why? This is due in part to a process of demands that Afro-descendants were making at the beginning of the Bolivarian process. Because when the constitution that today continues to govern the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela was being discussed, my organization, Fundación Afroamérica and the Unión de Mujeres Negras, brought a proposal to include the Afro issue in the Constitution. However, the representatives in that constituent process did not understand, and it was very much marked as a mestizo issue, no? That allowed us to organize at the national level. We did not enter the Constitution, but now we have to go to the organic law. It took four years before you arrived for us to have a direct relationship with President Chavez. But the noise, we were already making noise about the Afro issue because we were looking for some allies, national allies such as Aristobulo Isturiz, Bernardo Alvarez, and then international allies such as Trans-Africa Forum. You played a fundamental role for Chavez to begin to become aware. And remember that meeting at the Miraflores Palace. We went to an Afro-descendant community that we selected not by chance. It was because that community of Yaracuy, Beroes, had been a historical landmark in the Cimarronaje. And when they told me, I prepared something there for the president about what he was going to say in that community. I wrote something for him, and within it I said, I am also Afro-descendant. I remember when he said, I am mestizo. It's the voice of President Chavez, but my great-grandmother was black. And three months later, he spoke in New York on a radio show saying, look at my lips, look at my hair, it's Mother Africa. 
The reason for asking this question of your history of organic formation within the Afro community connected to President Chavez is really also to try to better understand the connection of the movement against capitalism led by President Chavez, the search for alternatives, and the development of plural socialism of the 21st century and how Chavez came to connect the issue of class against capitalists with the issue of culture connected to the Africanists in Venezuela. The key was three essential elements, how to connect the history that was the president's own history, his African part, which, of course, in his years of formation in the army and in his years of political ideological formation, the Afro issue had not entered. But then he starts talking, and it was an important thing for the president to realize that he was part of that history. And so he did. And a year later, James, you also came to this meeting with many leaders from the United States and the Caribbean. He delivers the decree, a decree that created the Presidential Commission Against Racial Discrimination in Educational System. Because we talked to the Minister of Education, our Cimarron brother, Aristubolo Isturiz, and we convinced them that the key, the key to the formation of the new republic, as the Constitution said, was education. And it was important to change the racist, sexist, machista curriculum that until then dominated our educational system. And that is why we could say that throughout the history of 26 constitutions that our country has had, and of many presidents, Chavez has been the first Imarron president with a sense of belonging to his African identity. So much so that the last, the last legal document, the last decree signed by Chavez before leaving to the world of the spirits was the law against racial discrimination. He died convinced that there was racism in Venezuela, that during those 12 years of his existence, he could not totally fight racism, but he was aware. And his letter, which made it to the third Africa-South America summit, recognized Africa as the womb, not only of humanity, but of all its contributions. He spoke about Haiti. He spoke about Toussaint Louvertier. He talked about Jose Leonardo Chirinos, about all those cimarrones, I can say with all certainty that Chavez was born a mestizo and he died consciously Afro-descendant. It seems to me in your account of this story of the connection between his own organic formation outside of schools, outside of books, and also the formation within this community, this connection to Africa from his great-grandmother, Chavez coming to this awareness was also an influence of Fidel Castro. I remember I was with Harry Belafonte and Danny Glover, Belafonte's wife, in Sao Landau, who did the first documentary with Fidel in Fidel's house very informally. I asked Fidel about the racial issue. He responded with the following, You should talk to Chavez. That was his response. You should talk to Chavez. And the implication was that he was listening to Chavez. He was in dialogue with Chavez about this connection because it's a bridge between this historic debate with the Marxist class or race and I think Chavez came to understand the reality, of, not of race formally, but of culture connected to racial identity with the working class struggle. What do you think about this speculation of mine? I think about the Chavez and Fidel connection, especially also after Chavez tries to carry out the coup d'etat here. Fidel sheltered him, and a good relationship became strengthened not only politically, but also spiritually, culturally, and ethnically. If he told you that you have to talk to Chavez, it is because I'm absolutely sure that the racial issue between them at some point was on his agenda. And it was a very practical agenda, James. Perhaps others may not have this understanding. The fact that Chavez has 
initiated, for example, the cheaper oil program in the poorest communities in the United States, especially Latinos, Native Americans, and African Americans, I believe it is a vision of that need for integration and the benefit of my resources or our resources for other impoverished sectors. The same happened with Petro Caribe. So I believe that this problem is not only talking about race, racism, but how you being in power can contribute precisely to the eradication of racism, giving a greater possibility of participation and awareness. I'm not talking about empowerment. I am not talking about empowerment. That is a concept of the world's bank. I'm talking about awareness, critical awareness, political awareness. And I think these two people managed to do it. We could also do the same when Lula enters a multipolar game, when Lula, Obasanjo in Nigeria, and Chavez in Venezuela create Africa-South America, which is also another important game that was being dealt with. In this first decade of the 21st century, a geopolitical change was being attempted in a very political way, without firing a shot. And I believe that this has been one of the most extraordinary times that we, the destitute, have lived through, as Fidel said in the first declaration of Havana. Beyond this history, it is important to examine this contemporary moment. What is your analysis of the situation of Afro-descendants in Latin America and the Caribbean in relation to capitalist neoliberalism and also in relation to alternative movements, such as the MST in Brazil and with leftist governments? in Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, despite many debates about what it really means, especially the case of Nicaragua. A lot of questions, but we are waiting for your reflection and analysis. Sure, those were and continue to be points of discussion. There is a left, there is an orthodox left that has not understood the changes that are taking place, that there are new social subjects of transformation and change. Sometimes, and this was a very, very strong discussion we had here two years ago when all presidents of the left-wing parties met here in Venezuela in the Sao Paulo Forum. The Sao Paulo Forum is the largest organization of left-wing parties in Latin America. We pushed for the Afro issue to enter the Sao Paulo Forum. What happened in the end with the final declaration? All Afro were there. After we had discussed what should be in the agenda from the Afro-left perspective, but then in the declaration of the Sao Paulo Forum in 2019, they said that racism did not exist in Latin America. We were practically made invisible. And there we had a full meeting in Sao Paulo with all the leadership, the left-wing parties of Latin America and the Caribbean, plus guests from Europe and the United States. We had to stop, stand up, and take the direction of the meeting and say that this was an act of racism that was being committed here, that this was not what Chavez had advanced on the issue of racial discrimination, nor in the name of the recognition of Afro-descendants. Some of them said, you're sabotaging. And I said, no, if I did this in a country like Colombia or Honduras, they would immediately kill me or take me to jail. But I'm doing it here in my country where I helped build participatory democracy. So put in the document the demands we are making, the fight against racism, the fight against institutionalized police system, the need to change the institutions, the need to revise the constitutions in which we are not appearing. That was the discussion. In that context and in this analysis that you make, how can we understand what happened recently in Mexico with the meeting of the Latin American Caribbean community, CELAC, in which in the report, one of the foundations, one of the conclusions is the focus on reparations 
on which the great majority of the non-Afro-descendant movements in Latin America have not focused, nor have the leaders of governments despite the fact that in 2001, in Durban, South Africa, at the World Conference Against Racism, Fidel Castro made a powerful reading on the history of colonialism. And I think in the third paragraph of his presentation, he noted the importance of using the word reparations, associating the Cuban Revolution directly without qualification of support from this parallel history that he mentioned with the Holocaust against the Jews. And now we are already here in 2021 in which in the Latin American Caribbean community, the issue of reparations is one of the central themes. Connect for us this contemporary moment with its historical elaboration on what Chavez raised and what Fidel Castro raised 20 years ago. Myself and other leaders who were in South Africa from September 7th to the 9th, we went out every night to protest and to say, reparations now, reparación ahora. That position of ours, which is a position of restorative justice, is not one of resentfulness, right? That created a climate at the Durban Conference because those who practiced the slave trade and generated the slave system in which most 30 million boys and girls, women and men in Africa were taken, kidnapped, abducted, and subjected to productive prison units such as sugarcane plantations, sugar, gold mines, silver, and cocoa. That history, those great empires of the past, whose representatives were present in Durban, did not want to hear that story. They did not want to hear the word reparation. And then, you know, they walked out of the conference, but we are still discussing the action plans. We're still discussing the action plans discussed in Durban about the necessary measures to make reparations to millions of enslaved people and their descendants in the Americas. That is why Afro-descendant concept the Afro-descendant concept for historical continuity, all this for the struggle for reparations. It is not because the Afro-descendant concept sounded good. It is because there is a historical thread. There is an ethical claim that is evidenced in the reparations. And from my perspective, it would be an advance in the concept and practice of participatory democracy, where citizens take a role directly in collaboration with their servants in government. Because without this collaboration of representatives of our communities with their public servants, we cannot advance beyond a rhetorical perspective. What do we need beyond Iraq to integrate ourselves within CELAC? What path should we open, for example, with President Diaz-Canel of Cuba? How can we continue with what President Maduro's administration opened when he convened the first really important Latin American reparations meeting, and a few weeks later he convened a group of lawyers from Africa and the diaspora? There are notes from recent history that really many do not talk about beyond people like you. What are we of African descent going to do beyond that? Because I am concerned about what I see as the tendency among some of the Afro-progressives to pursue a parallel path of reparations without getting into the cross range of national, regional, global politics, especially with the direction of socialism. Do you know what I mean? Yes, of course, James. You know, right? I'm remembering our formation when we were young and we read Mao Zedong, right? He talks about antagonistic contradictions and non-antagonistic contradictions. There are irreconcilable contradictions. For example, we do not accept colonialism. No, we do not accept any form of imperialism. But there are non-antagonistic contradictions, such as what is a procedure? How are we going to reach agreements? It is like the issue of power. Power, in all instances, 
how is power executed? How is power executed and power in its execution? It has several forms that are exercised from the couple's relationship. I admire and adore and love that extraordinary relationship you have with your wife, Miriam, because it is a power game. You give in, I give in, right? And it has stayed that way. I do not know how many years, I think 30, 40, or 60. 53 years together and 49 years married. It is because there is conciliation, because there is a way. And I think that many times in order to transform society, you have to be an example of the society you want to create. And it starts precisely from the couple's relationship, from the family, from how you understand spirituality, how you understand sharing and community. And that is what I would call that kind of relationship of how power is related. While it is true that we have advanced in a consciousness that used to be neoliberal, anti-imperialist, but there are deeper things and more of the daily life of how to exercise democracy. Because many times when we talk about democracy, it is because many times an elite also arrives and appropriates democracy and speaks in my name, in your name, and in the name of all. Do you understand me? But distribution is unequal. You measure it by consumption. You measure it by access to healthcare, regardless of whether there is a blockade or not. You understand me? And that is how you are going to see it. The same thing happens with social organization. Excellent. I want to conclude where we started, with your story organically connected to the interior thoughts of Africanists, of aesthetic expressions, of memories connected to Africa and your family. But there are many other examples in Colombia, for example, in Brazil, those from Cuba, of Africans who returned, those who were stolen from Brazil to Africa. Possibly you are the father of the concept of Afro-epistemology. Talk about this concept, a man who came you to be ambassador of the government of Hugo Chavez to Angola and to represent the government in other places in Africa and also here in the United States. But the one who initiated this concept of Afro-epistemology, talk about that and conclude with your new book, possibly two books. I read something recently about a new publication, Afro-Descendants in Latin America and the Caribbean. Can you quickly connect these two bridges of your life? Yes, I think we've had some knowledge in the United States, some books have been written. I was doing research in Mali, for example, and rice already existed in Mali long before the colonizers brought it, or the iron route among the Congo, among the Bantu area, the treatment of gold in the old empire of Ghana, or the empire of Sundiata, Keita, that before the French Revolution, there was already the charter of Kurukanfuga and what the charter of Kurukanfuga said about water which today is a problem that is endangering humanity, the respect for water, respect for women, from which conventions have been generated, laws against violence against women, that had already been done in 1321, respect for prisoners. I mean, Africa is also that knowledge and spirituality. And when I talk about Afro-epistemology, someone tells me that I was using a Greek term, epistemology knowledge. Yes. But if I tell you, Kuyindala Mangala, you will not understand. Then I have Simaronaje, the Greek concept of episteme, and it precedes the prefix Afroepistemi. But when you then go to read the text, you will get all this history. What was done of communism, of the commune, or the approach that went wrong, or the bad approach they wanted, it's not about that. There we still have to continue researching, and that is why this is the third edition, because almost all of the questions you've asked have an answer in the book. And what is the model to be built? That is the big question. 
Thank you very much, Brother James, for this opportunity. Well, thank you, Cimarron Jesus Chucho Garcia, Ambassador Jesus Chucho Garcia, founder of the Afro-Caribbean Afro-Latin Articulation and Fighter for Humanity. Thank you. Hello there. Thank you for watching our episode with Jesus Chucho Garcia. In this episode, James and Chucho have discussed how post-revolution democracy is furthered by all fronts of struggle, from laws and policies set forth by the government to grassroots and social organizations. They also discussed Chucho's lifelong work on what it means to be Afro-descendant and the struggle and complexities of bringing this concept to the highest level of discussion in Latin America. Subscribe to the People's Forum here on YouTube to see more cultural and educational content, and be sure to check out our political education website for further study on the topics of our past interviews. You can see it at politicaleducation.peoplesforum.org. Thank you, and see you next time.